Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 18 of the Corona Diaries. Um, The freshly back from his holiday with all that entailed Mr. Steve Hogarth is uh, is looking at me on screen. He's got a cheeky beer in his hand, folks. Uh, which he said was the only way he could get through this podcast. You now you told them. <clears throat> well, it's fine. They don't know what time we're recording. It is actually the afternoon. There's something <laughs> something's past the yard arm or something. Somewhere. Um yeah. You know, so it is that we are recording and we're under a little bit of pressure because we're recording a podcast. Today's today. If you're listening to this tomorrow, then we're doing it today. We've already done it and we haven't done it. If you're listening to this tomorrow, we haven't even recorded it yet. No. You're no, travelling in time, man. It's, it's in process now. You're listening to us recording this live tomorrow. Exactly. When you yes. get up in the morning, we'll be doing it. Yeah. Yeah, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey for those Doctor Who fans uh, uh, of you. Right, so chapter 18, the first thing I've got to ask you, H, um, how was the holiday and the two big things, the two big stories from Instagram, uh, traffic jams in Belgium and mosquito bites? Yeah, I've I've not had a lot of luck with holidays over the years and, and, and whenever anybody around me suggests booking a holiday, there's a part of me that withers and dies. Um, and, 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 you know, the feeling of sheer dread and, and, and the certainty that it's going to be traumatic. And I don't, think it ever, I don't think it ever hasn't been. All my holidays have been dreadful. I mean, there's, there's ten podcasts in the holidays I've had. Um, <clears throat> I've had such awful holidays, <laughs> one after another. And, and irrespective of the amount of money I throw at them, um, you know, the, the really expensive holidays have been just as bad as the really cheap ones. Um, this was a sort of mid-priced one. Um, we decided we would drive to Denmark and stay in a, in, in a summer house and then we realised uh, we wanted to stay a bit longer and, and the, the summer house wasn't available so we had to move halfway through to another summer house. Um, a summer house is basically a Dane, Danish person's romantic notion of a, of a glorified shed. Um, <clears throat> my my wife would strangle me for even even inferring that, but it happens to be true. Um, so the Danes have got a really really um, you know an ingrained affection for you know living in a shed. And um, for whatever reason, they prefer that to bricks. So they they move out of their comfortable houses into into these sort of wooden temporary buildings, and they call that a holiday. And Lynetta loves it, so she she likes to go and stay in a summer house. Um, the beds are usually uncomfortable. There's very rarely any air conditioning that works. 
And uh, while while we were there this this particular week, I was I was eaten alive by mosquitoes. We sat in the garden and had a bit of a social event with one of Lynetta's girlfriends and her husband. Um, on the second night we were there, and I could feel these little sods biting me the whole time, and and I felt like I'd be kind of socially weird if I went, excuse me, but I'm going. Um, you know, because she hadn't seen this particular girlfriend for years. and You know, I couldn't just go, I'm out of here. I should have done, but I didn't. And I sat there and uh, they're amazing, these Danish mosquitoes. They bite through your clothing. I think they bite through shoe leather, to be honest. They're extraordinary <laughs> little sods. And so I was covered in bites, not just where my skin was exposed, but everywhere. Um, and um, I thought my left forearm was the only part of me that wasn't bitten for reasons unknown. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so, yeah, very badly bitten. And it was 34 degrees every day, um, boiling, boiling hot. We had a few. We had a few nice moments on the on the uh, in the sea. I went. I went swimming in the sea with vibes, which again is which is very odd for me because I I normally don't do any of that. It's it's uh, it's very rare I take my shirt off uh, on holidays. Um, I resolutely remain fully clothed, usually fully socked as well, um, <laughs> and I'm usually the only one on the beach with wearing socks, cool blimey trousers and a shirt uh, whilst everybody else is just in trunks splashing about. And uh, But on this occasion, um, something came over me, probably shame, and also the theory that perhaps sea, sea water might ease these bloody mosquito bites up a bit. And so I got undressed and went in. And it was quite pleasant in the sea because it wasn't very deep, it was quite a shallow bay and the, the weather's been so hot, it, it, you know, still you still have that first moment where you go, oh my Christ, when you go in. Um, but but then you sort of got used to it and it was all right. <coughs> oh, hang on. <laughs> Did you hear that horn beeping? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, Milton Jones. He's got a joke about that, but well, I can't think what it is. Um, so yes, the holiday was, was, it was a long drive. Uh, the bits in the sea were good. Didn't get to sleep much. Um, and it was a bloody long drive back. And, and as my Instagram account, um, will, will attest, uh, I was, we were in the occasional gridlock, um, Germany, Driving through Germany is strange as well because there isn't a speed limit on a lot of the roads, on the on the motorways. And so because there isn't, you get these guys who are driving Mercs and Beamers at 200 miles an hour mm. right up the arse of people mm. who are driving at, at 90. You know, and you think 90 is quite fast till you get to Germany and then people, you know, you feel like you're... It just makes you tense. You've got mm. these guys screaming up behind you and you try and get out of their way and you get out of their way and then they then they tread on the brakes. And then you've got to tread on the brakes to change lanes because because the, the people in the middle lane are going so much slower than you were, even though it's not fast enough. Um, 
so there's this constant feeling of, um, you know, breaking and looking in the mirror and feeling you're about to die all the time. Unless you you try and drive at 140 miles an hour as well, and that makes you tense as well, mm. I find. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> especially with as much shit as we'd got in our car, I mean, it, it was like the Beverly Hillbillies going to Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd got furniture on the roof and everything. <laughs> I'm going to remember not to ask you about a holiday ever again. <laughs> no, they've all been dreadful. Right, uh, right, okay. Are you more of a city person then? Because when you go when you go touring, you seem quite happy and you mooch about and you have a coffee and, you know. Well, I'm just a selfish sod really. So as long as I'm on my own and I'm doing exactly what I want to do, you know, from moment to moment, I'm I'm as happy as a prince, and I don't really want much. But right. you know, as soon as you wrap a family around me, and that that constant having to having to keep up with other people's agendas, and you know, go out in the sun when you'd rather be in the shade, and and just have to constantly do stuff. That mm. if you were left on your own, you really wouldn't do because you don't enjoy it. Um, is is, is uh, I find just I'd, I'd just rather be on my own. I suppose I've spent a lot of time on my own, maybe an unnatural amount of time mm. <laughs> alone, um, and got used to the luxury of of that. You know, um, perhaps I'm setting my ways, mm. but. Um, you know, the decision to have a child fairly late in life has is, is, is certainly stuck the the stick in the um, in that or whatever you'd call it. It's 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 stirred that up a lot. You know, mm. there's not much chance of being set in your ways when you've got a, when you've got yeah. a kid because they've always got a plan. Yeah. Um, and so there we are. And and you know, I'm I'm not going to say anything about girls. You're in this podcast. Good. <clears throat> Good. But I because do we've think, had... you know, once you've got a girl anywhere near you, then, you know, you're going to have to do things you don't want to do. <laughs> right. Just to clarify, which part of I'm not going to say anything about girls and then literally a second later but you know, um, put out that comment. Maybe I, I... other human beings I've got right. a problem with. I, I, I shouldn't pick could... on the fairness thing. To, to be fair, anybody who's listening to this and has listened to it for a while is probably thinking about giving you a fairly wide berth now anyway because you've just realised you're a bit of a, a, a grumpy git. So, yeah, uh, oh, that's correct. So, <clears throat> uh, yeah. Uh, not, that that was, <laughs> not that that was ever part of the plan for the podcast <laughs> at all. Uh, it, it, <laughs> it's just a happy accident. <laughs> anyway. Um, well, he's a sort of giggling, grumpy bloke. Yeah. Yes. There we are. Yes. Yeah. There's yeah. a T-shirt. Yeah. Okay. Um, so today, what I'd what I'd like to, what I thought we'd do, because mm. um, I realised I know very, very little about the Europeans. In fact, I know very little about the Europeans and how we live. Um, and I know we've referenced them at different points on different episodes, and we've we've reminisced on certain stories. But what we haven't really done is talked about the Europeans as a thing, as in how did it start and what was its what was its sort of creative arc and and those kind of things. And it was, am I guessing right? It's about three or four years of your life in the early eighties. I guess it felt like longer. Um, 
Maybe it wasn't that long. I think we got... We, I joined the Euros just after I got married, which would have been 1980. Um, I think I got married in 1980. Pretty sure I did. Um, and um, I, I got into what was going on. I was trying to get trying to get a thing going with um, with the people from you know the guys from up in Donny that had come down with when when the van broke down and. Jonathan Hodge and all of that, the stories I've already told. And then uh, we split up um, the two guys, uh, Bannis and uh, Steve Ross, the rhythm section, decided they, they, they had musical differences and wanted to do their own thing. And so we split up and I didn't know what to do. I found an advert in the back of the Melody Maker um, and there was this band looking for a keyboard player. And I'd got some keyboards. I'd got a Farfisa compact duo organ. And I'd got, um, I think it was either a, I think it was a Fender Rhodes that I have, or was it a Wurlitz, a Wurlitz a piano? I think I had a Whirly. Um, and they'd had a keyboard player, and he had a Wurlitzer, and he'd left. And so they were missing the Wurlitzer. And I think that's what got me the gig, the fact that I had one. Um so we met up and they, you know, they looked my Wurlitzer up and down and thought, this is the man for us. <laughs> and, uh, and so I joined this band and they were called Motion Pictures. Uh, they were from Glasgow and they were really good and really pro and they had a, they had a proper van and they had a seri- proper Martin PA and they were just tooled up and had equipment because they... They'd done a lot of gigs up north in, in Scotland before they moved down to London in search of fame and fortune. And they'd just been very focused and they'd got all the, their material shit together. Um, and I thought, wow, you know, this is, this is proper. You know, it's sort of oven ready, to quote Boris. To quote uh, Boris. <laughs> <laughs> the buttery bastard chicken. Did I tell you that story? When, when Lynetta first came over to it, she went to Waitrose and uh, she phoned me up. She said, there's a thing here in the freezer called a buttery bastard chicken. Should I buy it? And I said, this butter basted it. It means, you know, it means the rubbed butter on it. Oh, I see. So um, <laughs> how did I get onto that? I haven't got a clue. Boris. <laughs> Boris. Which mustn't, yeah. Boris got us there. Oven ready. That was oven it. ready. Yes, buttery bastard. Um, so it was an oven ready band, and uh, and and so I joined them, and they and they had the house next to the, the tell the story about the serial killer, haven't they? And all yeah, that. yeah, and yeah. We've done that. We've done Winston that bit. We, we, we're joining things together, which is nice. Yes. And uh, so we spent quite a bit of time down there next door, but three, Dennis Nilsson. And um, we used to, you know, we, we, Jeff, the drummer, a guy called Jeff Dugmore, who's a great drummer, he's a session drummer now, and he, he does a lot of work in the Far East and keeps very busy and has drummed with all sorts of people since. Um, you know, he's kind of cropped up everywhere. And... Um, but he he was absolute he was and is absolutely brilliant at sort of networking and making things happen 
And he used to just live on the phone and hustle around and get his gigs. And we used to play all of those gigs on the circuit in the in a sort of late seven, well, early eighties it was, wasn't it? Of course, we used to play the uh, the Greyhound in Fulham Palace Road, and there was a gig in. Um, so again, South London, we used to do Hearn Hill. The Half Moon in Hearn Hill we used to do as well. That was on the circuit. And we used to play the Marquee Club and whatnot. And um, we, we used to rehearse in that rehearsal studio near Waterloo where Depeche Mode were always mm. down the corridor. So it was that time. And then we... We made this song called the Animal Song one one day down there um, up up the corridor from Depeche Mode with us all yodeling and screaming and Christ knows what. And we recorded it in the middle of the night. Um, we, there was some downtime in one some studio in North London in Islington, I think it was. And um, a guy called Trevor Vallis, who had been introduced to me by. None other than Jonathan Hodge, who I now hear has, has passed, sadly passed away last year. I got a message, so that was uh, that was a shame. <clears throat> I'd have gone to his funeral if I'd known, but having just found out, I couldn't. Anyway, Jonathan introduced us, introduced me back then to to Trevor Vallis, who was a, a really cool studio engineer. And he agreed to take us into the studio and record the animal song. And we recorded it through the night because it was cheap. And we played it to... In fact, that's another thing. We had this manager. We had these two managers called Lloyd Beanie. Oh, my God, what was the other guy's name? We had a couple of managers. Um, what was their names? Peter, very smooth, Peter, somebody, and, and and Lloyd. And they managed the Eurythmics as well. And we used to go to their office in Star Street in Paddington. And sometimes Annie Lennox would go by, looking very intense. Um, and we'd all nudge one of that. Uh, but we, I don't think we ever really spoke to her. Um, we were managed by them. And then Trevor recorded that. And then we got, I think somehow we, we probably Jeff again, um, managed to get this guy called Wally Brill at A&M to hear the animal song. And he came back and he got on the phone all excited. And uh, he wanted to sign us up. So we signed to A&M. We met all the people at A&M and they introduced us to their sister company, Rondor Music. Um, you know, lambs to the slaughter. Although they were nice people, to be to be fair. But, I mean, the music business was so sewn up back in those days, you know. And they'd advise you to, oh, you need to get a, you need to get a lawyer to negotiate, you know, your side of the deal. And I didn't realise until maybe only a couple of years ago that the lawyers they recommended were all in their back pocket anyway. They, they they all played golf with them and drank with them and they were all mates together. So even the people who were representing you as an artist to negotiate your deal with, you know, had been recommended to you by the people. By, by, yeah. <laughs> by the label. 
Um, and um, we, anyway, so I'm, I'm telling you how to make a watch again, aren't I? So we used to rehearse in, um, I'll tell you all about Lutz Road and Chris and you guys are gorgeous and the moonlight munchies and you bastards, you ripped me off. Uh, and Billy Idol and all of that. Um, we got a deal with a and and we went and we went to the townhouse studios in Goldhawk Road and also the Manor Studio out in Oxford, the, all owned by Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson. Um, and we made a record down there with a producer called Vic Coppersmith. I think he, he'd started out as a Vic Smith and then he'd had a hit. And he'd become Vic Coppersmith. And then he had another hit and he became Vic Coppersmith Heaven. Um, so by the time we got to him, he wasn't Vic Smith. He was Vic Coppersmith Heaven and people were carrying him around on a cushion. Um, and we made, we made an album with him. And uh, my main memory of that, I mean, at least, I mean, he never made us a salad like Tony Visconti did. He just used to... Did I tell you about Tony Visconti making us a salad? Well, I don't want to say anything about spoilers. It might be in today's diary. <laughs> All right. So, so, so not you know. I was trying to make it feel like it was a well-oiled machine. <laughs> so, hence, I was trying for my face not to break. Well, you know, I'm just trying to think of all the best moments, best memories of the Europeans, and one was Tony Visconti, of course, um, and uh, and Vic Smith, used, Vic Coppersmith Heaven, used to spend all his time on the phone to his daughter. He had a daughter called Mandy or Deirdre or something and she used to phone him up all the time and he'd just sit on the phone to her for ages. You know, while we were while we were sitting in the control room in the townhouse studios at how Christ knows how many thousand pounds a day, just watching the money go by, you know, <laughs> and, and, and twitching at how much it was all costing, you know, because in those days... When you went into a proper recording studio, I suppose it's the same now, but but the the amount of money per second mm. that was being spent, you were really conscious of it if you were a totally impoverished musician and you'd been used to living on tarama salata, which was more or less what we lived on in those days. Toast and tarama salata kept us alive. And... Um, so he'd, he'd just be on the phone casually rapping to his daughter and we'd be twitching, you know, looking at our watches and going, you know, can we tell him? Can we? Should somebody tell him? You know, is it in our interest to piss him off? It probably isn't, is it? But no, no give him another <laughs> ten minutes. So it was a bit like that. Um, and we made an album called um, Vocabulary and um, we went and did... Um, we went and did a, a video with a guy called, I think he was called Julian Orm, O-R-M-E. And, um, no, Stuart, Stuart Orm, he was called. And we went off to the studio and we made this mad video where we're all dressed up as iguanas and, and we're in all these little, all these white suits. And um, and it took, all, it took all day to make us up as iguanas before we even started shooting. And then we didn't have any time left to make the make the movie. <laughs> There's this scene in it where, where we wanted we we wanted we wanted this scene where we're all sat at a table, you know, like at the Last Supper, eating these these chunks of raw meat, 
covered in flies. Um, and uh, we got this guy and then Stuart was, you know, a, a proper filmmaker and he knew somebody who, who you know, you, these people you phone up if you want a tiger in your movie or a, or a lion or, a, you know, a, I don't know, a scorpion or whatever. There, there are these people who hire animals out for, for film shoots. And he'd, he'd got this guy who hired out flies. <laughs> Sorry, that's the funniest thing I've heard all week. <laughs> and this guy arrived with all these, with all these, <laughs> with all these, all these jam jars full of full of flies and blue bottles and stuff. God knows what he was charging us. And uh, we got to the scene with all the meat and everything, and we, we got all this 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 meat, and we we left it out so it got a bit warm and attractive to flies during the day. And uh, Stuart said, "Release the flies!" And this guy took the tops of all of these jam jars full of, and they all flew straight up into the <laughs> into the air and were never seen again. Um, so that was a waste of money. The fly hire company. Well, it, it, it was funny because I was going to say to you, <laughs> how do you get flies back in back in a jar? Very highly trained. <laughs> I, th- I think he'd. Uh, I think he'd I just... thought you were going to. Thought you were going to say it's it's how you enunciate. It's all in the tone of voice. <laughs> but clearly not. Yeah. Clearly not. So I don't know if you've been to fly training lessons or anything. You know, right. some some old old deer in walking one of those. You know, um, so yeah, that happened. That was funny. That was really funny. We 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 hadn't quite worked out what to smear on this on the food stuffs so that the flies would crawl on it. Um, we thought we thought they just would. But they weren't that highly trained, um, and off they went. So we made that mad video, which you can still find on YouTube, um, and um, then we, you know, we made vocabulary that came out. We 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 did quite a bit of touring. We we had a, as I've said before, we had a bit of a a hit, a minor hit in California with the Animal Song. Got a load of airplay. Went over there and were pop stars for a bit with Texas Tim and all of that um, tour managing. And uh, then what happened? Then we came back. Can I just stop you at that point? Can I just clarify a couple things? So there's four people in the band. You've mentioned one of them so far. Yeah, Jeff Dugmore on drums, Fergus Harper was actually the singer, uh, songwriter and bass guitar player. Right. When I met, um, and he was gay, and and uh, Colin War was uh, a guitar player, great guitar player, and 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 he he later later on after the Europeans split up, he kind of moved, he he me me and him kind of formed how we live. Oh yeah, it was Colin and I. Um, and Fergus so f- was was very gracious. Really, we, we we were in the studio one day, and 
you know, he said, have you got any songs? And I said, well, yeah, I've got a couple. He said, well, let's work them out. So we, we worked a couple of songs up that I'd, I'd had kicking around and he said, well, you should sing them if you've written them. So in that moment, I became the, the co-vocalist, which I hadn't been hired as. I'd only been hired for my well, it's... <laughs> so suddenly <clears throat> I was allowed to sing too. And, uh, you know, during the, 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 the few short years that Europeans were together, I, I probably ended up singing as much as he did. Mm. But we both had very, very different singing styles. You know, he was quite, and I was, you know, how I am. Mm. Um, so there were two, there were two very, very distinct sounds to the Europeans. There was the ones he was singing on, the ones I was singing on. The ones I was writing, I was writing, were probably a bit more. I don't know, you know, lyrical. You know, mm. like, like I am, and the ones Berg was writing were much more sort of uptight and post-punk and up, right up until um, the second album we made, Recurring Dreams. Um, now, who who the hell produced that? I can't remember who produced Recurring Dreams. I think that could have been David Lord. And well, Warren, I'm going to... I'm going to stop you again because I, I want. I, I don't think we're going to get through the whole story in, in. So I think we'll probably split it over two podcasts, and and I'll I'll do a, we can do a bit of research on the other bit. But it it was because I listened to some stuff today first time I've listened to it, and and that first those first tracks have got a very post punk feel, haven't they? Very you know, there's a lot of high energy. Yeah. Um. You know that kind of very staccato y drum fill and, and exactly. sort of intros and what have you, very... Uh, Uptight which and punchy. Is, yeah, which is very similar to the... Because you were, you were a backing band, the first time on record, I believe, was the, as a backing band for John Otway, is that right? <laughs> that is, yeah, that's probably true. Did we do that before we had the deal? You, we probably you, did. You did it, yeah, you did that before you did. Oh, so that was the first God. time on, on record. yeah. Yeah, the band behind the curtain tour. Yeah, he, he had a he had the, he did this tour where we were the band behind the curtain and we were backlit, so you could see our silhouettes, but that was all. So we was like we were like the Stig or something, you know, the, the musical Stig, <laughs> the <laughs> men of mystery. Who are those guys? And, and and he was out the front, you know, being John Otway doing his doing his manic daft kind of thing that he does, and uh, because because he'd fallen out with. With Wild Willie Barrett, who was the you know his <clears throat> when he had the big hit with uh, Really Free, it was him and Willie, and I'd seen them on the Old Grey Whistle Test, you know, when I was still up in Yorkshire, and just thought they were great, and and then we ran into him somehow. How the hell did we run into John? I don't know, but he 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 he, he had this proposition for us that we would be that he'd do this tour without Willie, and. We'd be the band behind the curtain, and then at the end of that, he said, "Why don't we make a record?" And in the end, he called it "All Balls and No Willie." Um, it's a great name for a record. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very, very creative guy, John. He's very funny and very, very clever. And I went to his flat once in Maida Vale, and he got um, 
in his, he had a flat and made a veil. And, and on the walls, he'd got like little frames with torn off bits of paper with calculus on them, you know, differential <laughs> equations that he'd done himself. And he used to do calculus and then frame it um, when he wasn't, you know, being a muso. Very curious and interesting chap. Um, still see him from time to time. He's still gigging. Mm. He was he was kind of making a living just by gigging long before, you know, long before everybody was in a way. Bef- be- you know, before before the recorded music business ended, mm. and then everyone had to start taking gigging really seriously. John had always lived from gigging, and that was you know I don't know eighty percent of what he was about was a performance, um, and we did that tour with him. And then we made that album with him, which we recorded in one of those Airstream caravans, those sort of shiny, oh, yeah. shiny yeah. bulbous uh, chromium caravans that I think belonged to, I think it was a Rolling Stones mobile. It was, it might have been theirs. And we did it in, we did it in there, a big multi-track machine in this silver caravan. And it was a lot of fun. I don't think he ever paid us for it. But um, it was a lot of fun, and that that must have been before we got the deal with A and M. And the band sounded really tight. I mean, it was very. You having listened to those tracks today, or some of those tracks, it was very much you know one, two, three, four, straight in. Three minutes later, we're done. It was, it was really great, was a great band. Yeah, it was really tight. Jeff's a great drummer. Ferg Ferg stuck to him like glue. Colin's a great guitarist. So so it was a really tight professional unit, you know, for want of a better word. It was a seriously good live band. Mm. And we were just absolutely certain that we were going to be huge. We were were certain. I mean, there Mm. was not one blinking grain of doubt amongst the four of us that it wasn't going all the way. And when we signed mm. to A&M, we just thought, we're going to be the biggest thing. And we mm. were certain of it. And then we weren't. <laughs> well, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to, because it's, I actually, having listened, as I say, to some of it today, I do think it falls as a story into two halves because I think there's a de- real development between the albums. And I'm certainly with you in the bits of the clips I've seen that uh, it's strange to believe that you weren't massive actually particularly by the time you get to the, the you know the, the second album some of the stuff on there because it felt really in the moment and prob- probably thinking of the time probably ahead of the moment to be fair so but we'll pick up on that one in chapter 19 because i think it's too good a story to try and condense it all into to one bit um and we're about ready for a bit of diary anyway i think um yeah. so so we'll we'll pick up on diary which is february 1992 February um, nineteen ninety two, and I think we're going to start on on the on the twenty second of February. I think. Yes. Well, where, I where was I? Was it was this? This was the American promo trip of Mark Kelly, wasn't it? Yeah. It was, it was yeah. Off you, to New yeah. York. That's right. You'd just been doing. Uh, you'd just been with Chris Kimsey doing uh, Walk on Water and Sympathy. Uh, Sympathy yeah. Uh, which I think was in Metropolis. I That's believe. That's correct. Um, and and I think we left it where you'd finished that, and you were about to jump on a plane the next day, which obviously will be will be where we pick up from today. Fantastic. Well, here we go. I'd forgot all about those flies in the jars. God, I didn't half lose my shit then. Um, yes, here comes the diary now. <laughs> 
Saturday, 22nd of February. Home, New York. Got up around 10, had a bath and dithered about till 11 when the doorbell rang. It was old chum stroke driver Jason who took me to Terminal 3. Met up with John and Mark and said hi to Beverly Lillywhite who was working on United Airlines check-in. She must be Steve Lillywhite's sister. Flew to America. Oh, yeah. I bought a camera at Duty Free, having forgotten mine. The journey took eight hours. Arrived at the Mayflower Hotel, New York City, around 7pm. Too late to phone Dizzy, who'd be sleeping back home by midnight. Showered up and had dinner with John and Mad Jack. Tony Visconti was having dinner at a large table with what looked like a band. I made eye contact with him a couple of times, but I don't think he remembered me. He'd produced a song called American People by the Europeans. The process was memorable for him leaving much of the session to his studio engineer, Kit Wolven, whilst showing us pictures of him and Bowie skiing, and most bizarrely, halfway through the afternoon, proudly announcing... I'm going to make you guys a salad. Whereupon he went out for an hour down Old Compton Street and returned with carrier bags bulging with French bread and green salad vegetables. It was a good salad, but a bit pricey at his not inconsiderable producer's fee. He also introduced us to his ex-wife, Mary Hopkin, who popped into the studio, Good Earth, great name, on Dean Street in Soho. She was very nice. Tony was lovely too, but his mind, for whatever reason, didn't seem to be on our record. Anyway, I lasted well and went to bed around 11. Sunday, 23rd of February, New York City. Woken by Jack at 7.30, wondering if I fancied breakfast at 8. Yes, I did. I'd been awake since about 2. Had breakfast with Jack and John and saw David Bowie go by outside on the sidewalk. America is like this. Before going to the Museum of Modern Art with Jack. It didn't open till 11 and we got there at 10.30. It was a lovely day in Manhattan, blue sky and not really cold. After the museum we went to Greenwich and I almost bought a fountain for $1,200. We'd have had some fun getting that home. Had dinner and returned to the Mayflower and got sloshed for hours. Monday, 24th of February. Promotion, New York City. Had breakfast around eight with Jack and John, then took a cab across town to Soho, where the IRS officers are. Did a couple of phoners, and then left for Philadelphia with Steve Carris and Meredith Hayes, the radio promo girl. It was a bit weird walking into the offices of the tip sheets. I felt superfluous and awkward for the first one. FMQB. Friday morning quarterback. FMQB. The second visit to Bill Hard, good name, at the Hard Report was more relaxed. His offices are in a log cabin. Bill struck me as a nice chap. He wanted to show us his new premises. They're in the process of moving, so we all jumped into a minibus. When I inquired as to a beer, he said he would call in at his home and pick a couple up. And what a home. It's a large house made entirely of logs next to a lake. 
it was beautifully decorated inside. Downstairs in the basement was like a youth club with bar and pool table, drum kit, PA, etc. He had Bowers and Wilkins loudspeakers in his lounge, which were the size of wardrobes. After visiting Bill, we drove back to New York, two hours, for a college press conference, then dinner with IRS heavyweight Barbara Bolin, tough but charming, and on to the White Horse Tavern, famous for where Dylan Thomas staggered outside and died, for a meet and greet with record store and distribution people. Phew. IRS really know how to run a promo operation. The vibe was very positive for the album. At one point during the drive to and from Philly, Meredith, whose driving was characterful, to say the least, spawned this verse to the tune of No Particular Place to Go by Chuck Berry. Driving along with Meredith Hayes, been on the road a couple of days, hit the curb at 95, really lucky to be alive, driving and playing the radio, with no particular place to go. Yeah, she nearly killed us. Tuesday, 25th of February, NYC, Montreal. Still can't get to grips with the time zone. Got up at 7.30, having been awake for hours. Had breakfast with the chaps and then did interviews, phoners and face-to-face, until 12.30. Packed in a hurry and checked out of the Mayflower. I took four malaria tablets on my way out of the door. Big mistake. Almost immediately felt odd. Got into a car to drive to the airport, feeling distinctly ill. To make matters worse, there was a smell in the cab which was like some very stale secretion of someone who had worn the same pants for a straight month after a slight accident below stairs. I think it was the driver. To make matters even worse, I was sitting next to him. To make matters even worse, when I finally arrived at the airport, feeling really ill, I discovered I'd left my passport at the hotel and had to make the one-hour round trip in, thankfully, another cab, only marginally more savoury. We caught the plane with minutes to spare. In Montreal, there was thick snow, but it wasn't too cold. Checked into the hotel and went out with the record company for dinner with a few record store people. I picked the wrong place to sit and suffered an ear-bending from a well-meaning but over-enthusiastic wannabe for most of the evening. Came back around 11 and went to bed for what turned out to be another four hours sleep. Jet lag. Tomorrow, LA, and another three hours to cope with. Wednesday, 26th of February. Montreal, Chicago, Los Angeles. Woke up early and went out for a trudge through the snow. I was trying to find some shops to buy some boots, as the old stout walking shoes had developed a hole. Eventually found a mall, which seemed to be full of shoe shops, all closed. Wound my way back to the hotel and ordered breakfast. Richard arrived from EMI, and the rest of the day was spent doing interviews. Highlight of the day was Music Plus, the kind of Canadian MTV. Sonia, the VJ, was totally into the album, Holidays in Eden, and full of praise. At five o'clock, we left for the airport and flew to Los Angeles via Chicago. 
We arrived in LA to be met at the airport by David Melman, head of publicity of IRS, and we climbed into the longest limo I have ever seen, like an intercity 125 with wheels at each end. I took to David immediately. Intelligent, witty and slightly eccentric. The perfect combination. The car deposited us at Le Ref Hotel, the dream, and I alighted, swooning at the scent of the blossoms which saturated the warm and fresh evening air. Rare for LA, but it had rained earlier. Went for a quick walk up the hill to Santa Monica Boulevard with Jack before retiring to my room, which was warm and homely. The Rev is a much less corporate-feeling atmosphere than the LA hotels I've previously inhabited. IRS sensitivity and taste is apparent in all areas. They're artier than EMI. Thursday, 27th of February, LA. Here we go again. Woke at five, but snoozed till around 7.30. Got up, showered and went walkies, east on sunset to find a children's clothes shop called Bloomers. It didn't open till ten, so I had breakfast at one of the cafes, sitting out on the street, watching the endless expensive traffic which traverses Sunset Boulevard. The waitress took my picture. Back to Lorev for interviews on the roof. Paddy Spinks, hit-and-runs American rep, came over and said hi. He left with John Arneson, and Mark and I were picked up by Nancy Chemez, who was bouncy and hyper. Went to Tower Records on Sunset, who didn't seem bothered. I guess with Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen swinging by regularly, they weren't likely to wet their pants over me and Jack. We had lunch over the road with people from SEMA Distribution. After lunch, we went to IRS to meet the company. I was particularly taken by Hugh, who is their creative marketing chap. Talented, hip and pleasant. More interviews than a meet and greet beer tasting where I met Michael Skurlock who struck me as experienced and corporate but relieved to be no longer working for a corporate company. He said he was excited about the songs. We returned to the hotel to shower then off to Barney's Beanery for more socialising with journalists. Barbara Boland came over looking knackered I told her to go home and go to bed, but she was having none of it. Millman played excellent host. We later went to a club to watch new signing, Dada. I enjoyed them very much and thought they shouldn't spend too much time producing the album, just capture what they're already doing. Friday, 28th of February. LA to Buenos Aires. Up at eight to do a phone to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Nancy arrived and drove us all over the place all day, apart from a visit to Album Network tip sheet with Michael. Panic over errors made in our air route, whoops, not going to be cheap, to Buenos Aires, were averted by the purchase of new tickets. In the evening, Steve O'Glendening took us to dinner and Paddy Spinks tagged along. A pleasant evening was had and we left for the airport around ten. The vibe from within IRS seems incomparable with Capital. I like the people and would spend time with them just for fun, especially David Millman, who is a gentleman and a wit. After a delay of one hour, we took off in a 747 the size of my street 
at 1am, bound non-stop for Buenos Aires. I've flown many times on jumbo jets, but this time I found myself gobsmacked afresh by the concept of something as long as my village and as wide as my house, floating in the sky at 600 miles an hour. Magic. Bugger the science. That's got to be magic. We're back, uh, and that was and, and that was a week in, in in your life back in 1992 in uh, well stateside, mm, I guess. Yeah, um, and we can talk about Tony Visconti and that salad now because you've mentioned it now. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, it was yeah a lot of strange things have happened to me, and that, that was one. Um, you know, we were, we were this this was Europe back in the days of the Europeans. We were uh, making. Um, a song, re- trying to record a song called American People. Um, and A&M found us up one day and said, you know, how about going in the studio and doing that with Tony Visconti? And we all thought, ooh, you know, because Bowie and T- T-Rex and, you know, he'd done a lot of really cool stuff. That would be amazing. So we went into his studio with this song, um, just just one track. And we thought, this is going to be incredible. And it really wasn't. Um, I don't know if he was having an off day or, you know, and we were just unlucky, whether something was going on in his life. But he kind of didn't seem that interested in, in, about the song and hands-on about the song. And he, he'd made far too much great music it wasn't a question of his talent or his taste or, or any, anything. I just don't know. I think we might have just caught him on a couple of off days. And um, he um, he just, he'd got a camera and he loved taking photographs. And he'd got this engineer called Kit Wolven uh, and Kit just seemed to make the record while... Tony just sort of grooved around in the background, didn't do much. Um, except, you know, he'd take, he'd take, he'd do lots of selfies. I think he was doing selfies long before the idea of a selfie existed and he was constantly photographing himself with us. Um, and then showing us little photographs of him and David Bowie, you know, skiing in Switzerland or doing this or doing that and... And and then it got about halfway through the day, you know, we're all kind of going, you know, maybe this is how he works, you know, maybe he just listens and then, you know, sprouts forth with some piece of genius in the, in the last, you know, when you least expect it. Um, and um, he just suddenly said, is anybody hungry? And we all kind of went, um, well... Well, no, I could eat. You know, it was about three in the afternoon at this point. And he just went, I'm going to make you guys a salad. And we all looked at each other. What the fuck? And he went out. And he went out shopping. And he went down um, Old Compton Street. And he didn't come back for about an hour and a half. And again, you know, we've got that Vic Coppersmith heaven thing. How much is this all costing? He's not even here. 
What's all this, you know, what's all this costing thousands and thousands of pounds? Jesus Christ. Um, you know, and getting more and more tense with every passing minute that he'd gone. And then he eventually, after what seemed like an age, he came bundling back through the door with all of these carrier bags. You know when your mum used to go shopping on a Saturday and then she'd come home and, you know, bundle through the door with all these bulging carriers and you'd think, what on earth is all that? It was a bit like that. And he came, he came, he came in and he got French loaves and whole lettuces and bloody tomatoes and, you know, slabs of cheese and... <laughs> and there was a little kitchen in Good Earth Studios, which he promptly vanished into for more time, during which we became even increasingly nervous. <laughs> and then he came out with this enormous salad on a platter and dished it out with, you know, the great, vic- victoriously, about the most victorious salad I've ever eaten. And um, it was a good salad. But, you know, that's not really what we were paying him a small fortune to produce. And, uh, and anyway, on, da- on day two, I don't think he turned up at all. And, and Kit Wolven, the engineer, mixed, mixed the track, mixed what we got. And they sent it off to A&M and A&M rejected it. And said, so, well, we don't, you know, we don't really like it, we don't want to put it out. So we were all, you know, gutted. And then about six months after that, I don't know if I should go public with all this, but anyway, about six months after that, we get a phone call and it was from the A&R people at A&M. Oh, Tony Visconti's been on the phone. He says he woke up this morning and he's really sorry, he just couldn't see that track. But he woke up this morning and he can see it and he wants to finish it. And we said, oh, great. And they said, well, he wants another £5,000 to finish it. And we went, tell him to fuck off. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was the end of it. So I don't know if they did tell him to fuck off. They probably just, you know, explained very tactfully that, you know, that the, the band weren't feeling it, man. Um <laughs> And you can was, buy a shitload of radishes with five grand, can't you? I just thought, is he having a laugh? You know, I mean, the least he can do is finish it for us, you know, without coming back. Maybe, you know, maybe he's just short of a few quid. And, oh, I'll phone A&M and tell him I'll, I'll do another couple of days on that track. So um, we, 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 we declined his offer. Mm. And, um, and then all those years later... Uh, in, as I've just read in the diary, I, I walk into this the Mayflower Hotel in New York, which is quite a rock and roll hotel, uh, with Mark Kelly, and we went downstairs to have dinner in the hotel restaurant, which was sort of in in the basement. And there's Tony sat with another band, you know, or at a big round table. I didn't recognise the band, but he was, you know, he was having having dinner with with what looked like a bunch of musicians. And I kept trying to kind of make eye contact with him, you know, and, and uh, the odd raised eyebrow. But he, he either didn't remember who I was or, or, or you know, didn't want to remember. <laughs> so, we know, so I, you know, I never said, I, I, sh- if, I mean, I should have gone up and said hello, really. Cause it, but I, I just thought, I didn't want to disturb him for a kickoff. 
and then secondly, I thought, I wonder if he might feel a bit awkward because of how, mm. how it all was with, with with American people. And then even more strangely, I went to bed, got up uh, and sat in the breakfast room and David Bowie walked past, you know, walked straight past the window and I think the breakfast room was slightly sunk down. And, you know, he was just through the glass, could have reached out and shook his hand as he went by. And I thought, God, how weird. And, what, what, and I don't think he was there because Tony was there. He probably, I don't think Tony, I think it was just a coincidence. Mm. I thought, well, bugger me. That'll be David Bowie then. Anything can happen in New York, right? And then I, I, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to go there. and I'll, I'll probably finish this week on this. Um <laughs> I'm starting to think that things that happen in your life are are aren't, are slightly all your own doing because you took four malaria tablets and then felt very ill. Yeah, is that, is that not how many you're supposed to have? Well, well, I've 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 never self-prescribed malaria tablets. If I'm if I'm being honest. Oh, okay. Uh, but four does sound a lot just to a layman. I probably thought I'd err on the side of caution. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it seemed. I, yeah, I did feel bloody strange actually off the back of those. Um, I don't know what the hell's in them, but um, I'll give you a bit of advice, listeners. If if you do take prescription drugs, just because they're prescription drugs doesn't mean you should be cavalier with them. Do read the instructions. <laughs> Because they can make you feel a bit dodgy. We might call the episode that. What should we call the episode? Don't be cavalier with drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Is that <laughs> people so often are? I, they are. You know, they are. They are. I think they are. You know, the two things go together, don't they? Drugs and just a general sense of being cavalier. Right. You know, I, I, your non-cavalier you know types tend not to take drugs much. No, no. Um, but saying that, though, if we we can loop back all the way to where we started, bearing in mind your relationship with mosquitoes, it probably wasn't a bad idea. Exactly, exactly. Because exactly. you appear to be a feeder, don't you, for mosquitoes? I, they love me. I, but I did Google, whilst in Denmark recently, I, I did take to Google because I was in so much agony um, that I, I wanted more information on on mosquitoes. First of all, I wanted to know why there were so many in Denmark and Google couldn't help with that. There was no no forthcoming ideas at all about, about why all these mosquitoes were in Denmark. Um, but... But they are attracted to certain people more than others and they're attracted to um, alcohol in the bloodstream. Um, <laughs> so I think they saw me as a kind of punch bowl for, for a good night out. You know, they were, they were partying down, the weather was warm, the vibe was running and uh, in the centre of the room was a punch bowl. Uh, we we don't know what's in it, but it makes us feel great and we're going back, they said as one. <laughs> you're the mirage in the distance and they get there and you're real and you're actually real. 
that. Oh. I think that could have been what did it. Right. Well, well, there we have it. Never say that the Corona Diaries doesn't educate and inform. Uh, it's almost public service broadcasting this week. It's why we're here, kids. It, it's why we're here. Right, okay. Well, do you know what? I think we'll we'll wrap it there. I think we'll call it a day. Actually, I've been saying in the podcast, somebody put it, mentioned it, that um, do the wrap-up. Mm. Um, I would say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do the diary and then we'll do a little wrap-up. And there was somebody who thought I'm, I was saying raffle. <laughs> and has been quite disappointed that we've not done a raffle draw so far. So... I don't know. I don't know. Maybe when we do the live version on the couch convention, maybe we should do a little raffle. Okay. Yeah, we'll raffle. Uh, some. How can you do a raffle when people have no tickets? <laughs> I'm not quite we, sure. We'll I'm, give it a I'm, bit of thought. I'm not thinking it through, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see what we can. We'll see I what we can if, come up if, with. If if each person just makes a number up and shouts it out. Yes. Yeah, and then when we just have a good feeling about that number, we can say it's. That's the one. Or we ask everybody to write a number down, and mm. we're and, and and we'll say the number, and they and if they've written it down, they've got to put it up. And you know, mm. obviously, that won't work either, will it? How long does it well, take to write to a be number? Able to look at all of the people. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's not going to work either, is it? No. Yeah. Yeah. We'll give it more we'll, thought. We'll, we'll have to work we'll on have this. To do we? it on a more sort of metaphysical level. Right. You know, right, a okay. feeling. Yes. Yes, we've had a raffle. Number, and we're going to feel if it's yes. one. Yes, Derek, your numbers come up. <laughs> <laughs> if we have any Derek's listening, right? Uh, I guess I'll I'll talk to you next week. We're bound to have a Derek. Yeah, bound to have a Derek. More than one, probably. <laughs> I'll have mm. a look at my database. Oh yes, yes, yes. But Peruse not right your spreadsheet. Now. No, no. Right, right well, I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk to you next week. I get sucked in once I start with that database. I can't believe you said that when we were so close to the end. <laughs> are we close to the end? We, I mean, I'm very close to the end. I'm going to get a beer. Right. Thank you for listening. Yes, thank you and very much. For listening, everybody. And the next thing you hear will be this week's Croomcast. Thank you, Steve Wheeler and Simon Preble and Gino T, Johnny Devereux and Darren Pallet. Thank you for being purple, Tim Manning and Mark Wilson and Magnus Goodbranson and Greg Lobes or Lars or Lars. Thank you, Chris Story and Hans Chris Enger, Sai Frank Paddlestan, Peter Davis, 
Derridala Rab Nebus Unabus and Dan Lawrence. Marcus Hammerstrong and Becky Bateson, Miguel Alves and Pascal Gross, thank you. And short, what would the Corona Diaries be without you? I'll tell you. A big hole in space, where a beautiful thing. Might have been Thank you Jordan Walton And Richard Sport Tony O'Brien And Miles Davis What a name Gerardo Martinez Anthony Kirkham and Chuck Stewart and Victor Lund Thank you Edward Martin Leave it there Except to say Martin See or say Says he hasn't had a shelter But I think he has Somewhere Still there's no hope Doing another one and shout you said I pronounced her name wrong. Sorry, shout you. Is that better? Mary Schlauer Who rhymes with flower With a shirt on the front Lynn Nest 
said I forgot it What a thing to do So I'm gonna finish Whittling on Oh, like Father Christmas And this like Loch Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.